0: Turn with me to Ezra, chapter 10, or page 381 in the Bibles in the Rose. Ezra 10. <clears throat> Life is filled with hard things. We all get that. Things go wrong for many reasons. Today we're talking about a special class Of hard things, however. These are not hard things that happen to us. These are hard things that we choose to do that are right because previously we have chosen to do some things that were wrong. We know as believers in Christ that God in heaven forgives us completely of our sin by his grace. But here on earth, there are hard things we must choose to do in an effort to make things right. Uh, The Bible has a lot of things that we don't necessarily like to hear, but the one we look at today is especially hard. Here's the short version, just to get us used to it. Ezra, the godly priest, returns... With a large group of Israelites, Jews from exile in Babylon, and makes the journey to Israel to go and encourage those who had returned decades previously to rebuild the temple. Ezra's going to teach and encourage them spiritually. What he finds is that many of those exiles, many of the Israelite men, had married the neighboring foreign wives. As a result of those marriages, they had begun to practice alongside their wives some of the pagan practices. This was all in direct violation to what God had commanded. Don't marry those women. And so Ezra asks them to divorce those wives and send the wives and their children away. And that's the end of the book of Ezra. Ugh, right? When I knew I was going out of town this last weekend, I jokingly told Seth, while I'm gone, go ahead and finish up the book of Ezra. (laughs) Somehow it didn't seem right to uh, pass off a message called doing hard things. Important things are never easy. School, work, exercise. Uh, Spiritual growth is not easy. And really, I think the question before us today is, are we willing to do hard things so that we and our family and our descendants will be better off spiritually? Are we willing to do hard things so that we, our family and descendants, will be better off spiritually? So let's jump into this uh, final chapter of the book of Ezra. And uh, the first principle I think we will see is that true repentance means making hard choices to be holy, verses one through five. When Ezra, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, the temple, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehael one of the descendants of elam said to ezra we have been unfaithful to our god by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us but in spite of this there is still hope for israel now let us make a covenant before our god to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my lord referring to ezra and to those and of those who fear the commands of our god Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands, telling Ezra. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. Wow. Let's... uh, Let's address our biggest concern, the elephant in the room, right away, and that is, is this telling us we should go and do likewise? I think actually the Bible tells us the opposite, because in the New Testament we are actually told, don't divorce when your spouse is an unbeliever. In 1 Peter, Peter writes, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. So in the New Testament era, very, simp- very simply and very clearly, Peter says, if you are spiritually mismatched, don't divorce, speaking to ladies in this case, because your godly example can be part of what God uses to win them to faith in Christ. Okay. Okay. Likewise, First Corinthians, Paul writes, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I don't think this is any guarantee of holiness, but it seems that it is saying that both for husbands and wives and children who are part of a spiritually mixed marriage, there is a holy opportunity by preserving the marriage by which, like Peter said, one might be drawn to and won to faith in Christ. No guarantee, but I know of some great examples of where that exact thing has happened. So if it's not telling us that, the question we would have of the text is, why was it like that then and not now? Let's think about that. Israel lived under a different covenant, covenant meaning a different arrangement that God had with them for how things were done. For example, none of you brought sacrifices to church today. None of you uh, are trying to obey the 600 or so ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. There are many different things about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This seems to be part of that. And that also leads us to understand how then God worked with Israel as a nation. God's blessing on Israel depended on their spiritual condition as a nation. God, in, those, in the Old Testament era, was uh, involved with and revealing his will through a single nation, not a church of many nations, so it's as if all of his eggs were in one basket and he was protecting that uh, nation from spiritual influence. And so there were some very strict and important rules that went along with that. And then we can look at the example of history in the Old Testament that tolerating intermarriage with pagans resulted, you could really say always resulted, in widespread idolatry and God's judgment. Samson and Delilah... Solomon and 700 wives, almost all pagan. Ahab and Jezebel are examples of where leaders married pagan wives with the resulting spiral that, in a sense, really is what led to generations, centuries of downward uh, spiritual journey ending in the Babylonian destruction of the temple and the exile that brought us to the place at the beginning of the book of Ezra. So, would this step that we read about in Ezra 10 bring about unimaginable personal family pain and loss to every offending family? Absolutely. And yet somehow in the wisdom of God, it would hold off spiritual disaster and avoid more serious judgment by God. So while we are not called to do this hard thing, The principle is we are called to do hard things, to break free from sin or to prevent uh, and avoid future sin problems. So let's kind of walk through the passage uh, and see how this unfolds. The first issue we see uh, worth following is Ezra's genuine remorse for sin, realizing he was not even guilty personally. This is on behalf of his people as a priest. Confessing, verse 1, weeping, throwing himself down, praying. The Four verbs here, following up. Three we saw two weeks ago in our study, uh, in chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, and he tore his garments, pulled out some of his hair, sat appalled. Why such a public display? He is showing that the spiritual stakes are incredibly high with what he has come and discovered. Grieving for sin. Do you grieve over your sin? It's not quite the same as guilt. As believers, we probably all experience guilt about sin. The Holy Spirit does that. Grieving is not quite the same as regret. Often our regret is based on how this sin has made us feel or the consequences or the trouble that got us in. True repentance is not about my feelings of guilt and regret about me, but godly grief is God-word grief. It's when we experience the violation of the holiness of God. It was contagious, large Crowd, men, women, children, weeping, but contagious in a good way. God used His sincerity and remorse for sin, and it spread by the Spirit of God around Jerusalem. I remember uh, at the Christian High School where Priscilla and I attended and met. There was a, on a particular day in a chapel service. I remember a special movement of God. I think there had been a special speaker or something, and. So there was a chapel devoted to giving testimonies. And I think it was started by a student who stood up and publicly confessed uh, sin and asked for prayer. And it began a series of contagious, open confessions and tears of repentance and a work of God that day. There's a reason why we are called to meet together in settings other than public proclamation. But places where we can be sincere and open and transparent about sin, James 5.16 says, to confess your sins to one another, there is a special power that is contagious in that. The first step was genuine remorse or repentance. Secondly, in verses 2-5, through five, we see how they sought God and His Word. Shechaniah, not known otherwise really rises to the occasion. It says he's the son of Jehael, which in verse 26 we find Jehael was one, his dad was one of those who was offending by marrying a pagan wife and sent her away. So he knew this situation in a very personal way. In fact, there are the possibilities been raised that these were actually additional wives. This was polygamy as well as uh, spiritually mixed marriages. But I love his final statement. I love him because he says, "In spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. When, when, when addressing sin seriously, you need someone to speak about the grace and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So this man is a guy who understands, alongside Ezra, God's holy standards, and yet he fully understands God's grace. He knows how God thinks. He knows how God's work works he knows that if the nation did nothing they were in deep trouble with the holiness of god but that if they did respond they would be the great recipients of god's grace and he understand stood the tension and the blending of those important traits the holiness and the grace of god so there is hope the study this this point is is hard as we think about how to cut sin off Uh, by the throat, but we have to understand that God's grace, there is still hope in all of this. Notice as he supports Ezra, his focus is, verse 3, now let us make a covenant before God. It's not just what you and I think. It's a covenant that is vertical. Sin is always a vertical issue first. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he wrote in his confession, Psalm 51, for against you, praying, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So the first primary issue is, what does God call sin in our lives? How will we discover that? John, 1 John 1 8 says, If you say you have no sin, you lie and the truth is not in you. So, what is, it's not what the culture thinks is sin. It's not even what a Christian friend at church thinks is sin. It's not what I think is sin. Not what some good Christian book or blog or something you read on the internet, because you'll always find someone to agree with you. But you, with the Spirit of God, to ask the question, what sin are you addressing in my life? And then what to do about it? Shechaniah says we go to God's Word and God's people. In accordance with the counsel of my Lord, he says, recognizing Ezra's role as a priest and a spiritual leader, and those who fear the commands of our God, so there's Ezra and Shechaniah, leaders, there are others who submit themselves to the commands of the word of God, so let it be done according to the law. This is a beautiful example of how God works in concert with others. God could have sent a prophetic voice like he had done some decades before with Haggai and said, this is the problem, this is what you've got to do. He sent Haggai, he sent Zechariah, we've seen that. But this time, he sent Spiritual leaders working in concert with the whole group. It's amazing the power when God works like that together, corporately. We're used to individual. Pastor Seth mentioned in the message last week. I watched it early in the morning from St. Louis. He mentioned that the church board is developing a document of core values in itself. This this is a, a valuable, rich experience as. Uh, now 10 of us are are working through uh, what are the important things that God uh, has impressed on us for church life here. One of the core values we've been discussing is our philosophy that we desire to have ministries led by a team of leaders as opposed to just a single individual. Uh, There seems to be such good biblical examples and wisdom. There's got to be key point people who initiate things, but a team of leaders sharing responsibilities as you address hard things or pursue good things that God is leading. Ezra seems to get this. He knows when to back away. He seems to know when to share his leadership. There is genuine remorse There's a seeking of God in His Word, and now as we go to verse 6, we find there is a spiritual preparation before action steps. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. He goes to a room... To pray, fast, grieve the nation's sin a bit longer. There are times you just don't know what to do, or if you do know what to do, you hesitate to do it. It's a hard thing and you aren't sure what to do. It might be about your own sin. It might be as a parent how to handle uh, sin in in the children that you, you oversee. What kind of discipline maybe? How many have ever regretted the first thing that came out of your mouth when you stated some discipline? (laughs) Do you take it back? Do you stick to it? I think it's a simple principle Ezra models here. As you're faced with those tough decisions about hard things, wait a bit and pray a lot. Wait a bit and pray a lot. It's possible Ezra isn't even praying about their decision because it seems they've already decided the leaders have agreed this is what we've got to do. They've even taken the oath, verse 5. So what could he be praying about? I, it could be He's praying about how will the people respond. This is a huge ask. If we think it's ridiculously hard 2,500 years later, how hard was it when these are women you knew? These are, these are children you, you joked around with in the marketplace so he fasted and mourned, and then he sent out this proclamation, verse 7. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem, Judah the area, Jerusalem the city, for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and the elders, and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. This was the most serious discipline that a Jew could experience, outside of capital punishment, I guess, to be expelled from the community of Israel. And so, knowing this is a critical crisis moment, Ezra is prepared and then he gives the proclamation that he and the other leaders, I take these to be leaders of the exile community that was already in place, Who had a spiritual mindset gave the proclamation, how will they respond? There's a couple of things I think we've learned along the way. I'll just uh, put this up here of how to address our wrongs. There's a number of things that we see happening that is setting the stage for what God is doing. They clearly admitted their sin before God, they sought the wisdom of spiritual leaders. The principle of wait a bit and pray a lot and then be willing to do what is hard. Which is the sticking point for you? The admitting, the seeking wisdom, the waiting and praying, or the willingness to do? So how did the people respond? Verses 9 through 15. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. Now, instead of labeling it geographically, he goes by tribe. This, this southern uh, area called Judah was actually um, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And on the twentieth day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God greatly distressed because of the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from the foreign wives. I take it this is a a men's meeting. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it's the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, the matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. It's not just a couple people. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and the judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away From us, only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Jeziah, son of Tivka, supported by Malchulam and Shabbathi the Levite, opposed this. There will always be those who uh, oppose what the work of God. And very likely, we, we would suppose that these are men who were offenders in this case, making hard choices requires spiritual courage and wisdom. So repentance means making hard choices, but making hard choices requires courage and wisdom, and we see that here. First, the courage issue. Where do you get courage from? To do, to get over the hump, whatever emotional, spiritual, uh, family, cultural hump it is to do that hard thing, How do you find that courage? The core trait that empowers courage is humility. Do you see humility running through here? They received the confrontation. They embraced the sin and guilt. Nothing changes in our lives without humility. Nothing changes without humility. Can we say that together like twice? Nothing changes without humility. Nothing changes without humility. They came trembling. The word in the Hebrew language can mean both trembling and shivering. Uh, the date is December, not eight. It's winter. There, December 8th. So it's already cold. Now add wet and no cover. And yet they came. So not only was it cold and wet, but they were feeling the weight of their guilt and the fear uh, of what might happen. Notice at the end of verse 14 about this set time coming with the elders and judges until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. How much trouble are we in, they're wondering. So Ezra, with the support of Shekinah and the leading priests of Ezra, and having spent time praying and fasting and preparing, makes this declaration and says, in verse 10, you have been unfaithful. He calls it what it is and says, now make, verse 11, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. It's a holy moment. Ezra is speaking verbally, but God is speaking internally. It's called conviction when we submit ourselves to the Word of God, God Himself speaks to us because He is holy and because He is good. And He knows what to do to cleanse, to heal, and to help us do whatever hard thing it is He wants us to do. Conviction itself is useless because you can grow to ignore and tolerate it. But it's when we decide to respond with humility. And they did. They said yes to God. Notice the way they said it. You are right, verse 12. We must do as you say, end of verse 14, because we have sinned greatly. This is the language of Humility before God. You are right. We must do as you say. We have sinned greatly. Is this your posture towards God? You are right. We must do as you say. I recognize my sin. Is this, is this your posture to spiritual people who might speak into your life? friends, or leadership. Is this your posture when you make an apology? Or are our apologies edged with, but, as we defend ourselves, you are right, we must do as you say. We've sinned greatly. I've been impressed in recent studies of books of Samuel, at the key contrast between King Saul and King David, the first two kings of Israel. Uh, That's in in so many ways the, the, the main issue of the book to see those two men and their contrast. Because King Saul is rejected by God and replaced by David, who is then called a man after God's own heart. And so Saul ends up in disgrace and committing suicide, and we all celebrate King David. And yet if you look at the actual events and the narratives of their life, you would probably conclude, just from our outsider's perspective, that the sins of David were greater than the sins of Saul. The sins of David were this adultery with Bathsheba when he had all these other wives. And then to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba, he sends out a hit man or a hit squad to make sure that her husband dies. And And what Saul did, that key pivotal point was, he made a sacrifice because he was impatient. That he wasn't supposed to make. Now from our perspective, murder and adultery... so, why is David called a man after God's own heart? Boiled down to one issue humility. Humility and humility. Saul defended his sin, Saul lied about his sin. David confessed his sin and repented. Saul was angry about the consequences of his sin to himself. David was grieved about the effect of his sin on the holiness of God. The language of humility is, You are right. We must do as you say. I've sinned greatly. These suggestions came from the heart of these men in the crowd. They were practical uh, and and wise. I I don't think they were defensive when they said, You know... Just can't make these decisions standing out here in the rain. <laughs> we get that. And so evidently as they talked among themselves and, and had this discussion and, 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 and they, they came up with suggestions coming from those hearts of those men who were gathered and said, Why don't we do this? Let our officials act for the whole assembly. That's a that's a that's an attitude of trust and humility to put themselves under the officials who had been gathered by godly priest Ezra. And we'll come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each of these towns. So they're setting the stage for a fair investigation. The uh, area of Judah is not all that big you see on the scale there it's 20 maybe 30 miles to Jerusalem from any of the areas where these exiles had probably resettled just as 3 days was sufficient for them to have the first uh, proclamation made and so now we're going to make appointments and we're going to we're going to meet let our officials, verse 14, act for the whole assembly, then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. And so they set a appointments. Elders and judges from the local areas that came along would essentially serve as uh, lawyers and or witnesses before the judge and jury of those officials, because the local elders and judges would know the real story as they went case by case. They would know whether this was really a pagan wife or perhaps was this a proselyte who had converted to the worship of the God of Israel, like Rahab from Jericho, or like Ruth from Moab. Because, you see, Gentiles could be accepted in Israel if they were truly converted, but in this case, who would decide? If this was a true conversion, or if someone suddenly claimed, I follow the God of Israel. Kind of like sometimes uh, people get into marriages, believers and unbelievers, because, ah, okay, I, I love Jesus, and we can just kind of say what we want to say so we can marry who we want to marry. But the wisdom to do hard things here came from some careful deliberation then. Verses 16 to 18. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. They set a schedule. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate cases. And by the first day of the... First month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women, and then comes the list. And so, in 60 days, they decide all of these cases. And if we were to read through the names, which we won't, there are some 113 men's names who are found to be offending in this spiritual uh, mixed marriages and who then send away their wives. Verse 44. With their children. All these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. Excruciating. So they worked on it for some 60 days, so about a case or two a day. Uh, Maybe there were many more cases, but there were found to be some of these spiritual uh, exceptions or other circumstances, but they were careful. Verses uh, 18 to 22 list the priests, first of all, who were guilty. There were quite a few that were to be spiritual leaders who were guilty. This This is how things work, is when the leaders are guilty, it is really worse. Then Levites and temple singers, verse 23 and 4, and then many others, the rest of the list. So they send them away. That's how the book ends. Is the conclusion of Ezra a letdown or a spiritual high point? If you think about the book of Ezra that we've been studying, it has been a story of the goodness of God. It's been the story of how God has been at work, first of all, in the political rulers of the day, Cyrus and then Artaxerxes, who not only agreed but commissioned them to go and rebuild their temple and restart worship in the homeland. It had been the work of God in key leaders like Zerubbabel and Ezra who were able to shoulder the responsibility of taking tens of thousands of peoples back to the homeland to worship. It had been the movement of God in those tens of thousands to pick up their families and move to go and restart worship. It had been the story of the grace of God when they went there, started the temple, and then would not complete the job, but they responded 20 years later and finished it up. It had been a story of the goodness of God from the beginning. So is this still good? Maybe it's the best thing of all. Because God cared so much about the turning points of all these people and all the work he had done that he was going to do everything possible to preserve the spiritual gains he had made. And if if God has been at work in your life in some special way in just maybe the past months, prompting new commitments and new... Just realize that God will do everything he can to preserve the spiritual gains, and it may include some hard things that he would have for you to do. And that's why we can't just talk about God's grace. We have to talk about addressing sin. I'd like to share seven hard things that we might need to do. These are not so much steps in sequence, but these are a, uh, a series of things. There are some, uh, these are printed at the back table. You can pick up a copy if you don't want to write them down or if you're interested. Number one, Prioritize holiness. Aligning with God requires hard choices to anticipate and prevent sin. Prioritizing holiness. As long as the necessary issues of financial gain, success of ourselves, success of our kids, and, and having as much fun as possible continues to be our priority, we will not address hard things in our lives. It has to become Holiness must become priority. We must identify spiritual weaknesses. I've got to recognize my own sinful patterns. If you think you have a hard time discovering what those are, dare to ask the people who know and love you best. I thought you'd rather try to find it out yourself, right? But no, if if you've been responsive to the Word of God and the Spirit of God in prayer, you you probably know what these tendencies are. Accountability. Accountability. Spiritual health requires connection and accountability to a church family. What we see happening in Ezra 10, the fact that there was a willingness, a united willingness to do hard things, is because they were so connected to each other. Today, not in a nation, but in the church family, we have a natural accountability if we are willing to connect. And in that natural accountability, it's not only about addressing our failures. Accountability is about encouragement. Encouragement. It's about learning from others so we don't have to make all the mistakes ourselves because someone in the group that you would share with has already made some of those mistakes and and you've made some for them and and we can encourage and help avoid things for one another. Number four is sacrifice. We give up something to experience true change. Every doctor will tell you that you need to give up certain foods and give up time to to, to keep active, right? There will be sacrifice. And if spiritual health is our true goal and holiness before God is our true goal, there's going to have to be something that we will give up. There will be some activity, some attitude. There might be places we cannot go. Maybe some shows that have to be deleted from our streaming list, even though we never know how the story is going to turn out now. There'll be some hard choices. It's worth it because of the family impact. Dealing decisively with sin begins to address the generational power of sin. We all know that we, at least we've observed in others, certain sins seem to follow generations by simple modeling, I guess. And so we know where we have perhaps picked up some of our parents' worst traits and not only their best. And so how will we address that? Someone has to put on the spiritual brakes and start over. And dealing decisively with hard choices becomes that first step. King David's immorality had contagious consequences in the generations. And what we address decisively can have profound impact to spare our children and precious grandchildren. Sin requires some follow-up. Confession is Godward and he cleanses and forgives us. But apology, restitution, etc. can address others hurt by my sin. There are consequences of sin that we cannot stop, even as David could not stop all of them. But clear, honest, humble apologies, restitution for losses where possible, making other sacrifices can be part of healing the wounds, maybe, that even we have caused. God forgives instantly in heaven, on earth. Healing's a process. Rebuilding trust it takes time. And then finally, hope. Choosing hope. Hope is found in God's grace to forgive and the Spirit's power to transform. I love Shekaniah. There is still hope for Israel. God's nature is about grace to forgive. He is eager to forgive. The cross was all about God redeeming his relationship with sinful men, women, and children. As we address that and embrace his grace, we then are desperately in need of help that we, with power, we cannot provide. I'd like to just share two walking principles that kind of launch into the uh, the rest of the story of where we go from here. You could say First John one seven says, "If we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's us and God. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. This is a continual need we have to walk in the light. The story of Ezra ten will have to be refreshed over and over and over in our lives. That's walking. That, that's that's walking on a sinful earth." And we know the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us. Here's the other kind of walking. Galatians 5.16, But I say walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. We need power we do not have that only God can supply. And because God has given us His Holy Spirit, He lives within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He will enable us to make any change He prompts in our heart. Do any hard thing that is necessary, because His Spirit, God Himself, works through us if we yield to Him. But there is no change without humility and yielding to that Spirit. But there is hope because of the forgiveness of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are deeply in need of Your grace and Your power. Uh, Continue to show us your self so that we can see ourselves honestly. As we see ourselves more honestly, um, protect us from uh, a spiritual depression in which we are simply down on ourselves, but instead we are amazingly encouraged at your grace for us. And that the deeper we go to acknowledge our sin, the bigger the ocean of your grace appears. Thank you that there is always hope and that your, your spirit empowers us to live a transformed life. In Jesus' name, amen.